Chapter Five: Case Study: The Boy in the Shower. When you were a graduate assistant in 2001, did something occur that was unusual? Yes. Could you tell the jury about that occurrence? March 21, 2017, Dauphin County Courthouse in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The witness is Michael McQuarrie, former quarterback turned assistant coach of the Pennsylvania State University football team. He's strapping, self-confident, with close-cropped hair the color of paprika. His interrogator is the deputy attorney general for the state of Pennsylvania, Laura Dicka. No audio exists of this trial. Every recording you will hear of a legal proceeding relating to Sandusky is a reenactment. One night, I made my way to the football building, Lash Football Building, and proceeded to one of the locker rooms in the building. I opened the locker room door. I heard showers running, heard slapping sounds, and entered another doorway that was already propped up open. My locker, in an aisle of lockers, was immediately to my right. Turned to my locker, and obviously I knew someone was in the locker room taking a shower. And the slapping sounds alerted me that something more than just a shower was going on. At that point, Dicka stops him. What time of day was it? McQuarrie says. Eight thirty at night on a Friday. That corner of the campus is quiet. The Lash Building is all but deserted. The doors are locked. Okay, I interrupted you. I wanted to ask you another question. You've described something as slapping sounds. You weren't talking about like clapping, like applause. No, no. You were talking about a different kind of sound. Yes. McQuarrie said he looked over his right shoulder to a mirror on the wall. Which allowed him to see at an angle into the shower. He saw a man, naked, standing behind someone he called a minor individual. Were you able to make? You say a minor individual. Are we talking about a seventeen or sixteen-year-old, or somebody who appeared younger? Oh, younger. Okay. What would be the estimation of the age of the boy you saw? Roughly ten to twelve years old. Okay. Were they clothed or unclothed? Unclothed, naked. Did you see any movement? Slow, very subtle movement, but hardly any. Okay, but slow, subtle movement that you saw. What kind of movement was it? What was moving? It was Jerry, behind the boy, right up against him. Skin to skin. Yes, absolutely. Stomach to back. Yes. The Jerry that McQuarrie was referring to was Jerry Sandusky. Who had by then just retired as defensive coordinator of the Penn State football team? Sandusky was a beloved figure at football-obsessed Penn State. McQuarrie had known him for years. McQuarrie ran upstairs to his office and called his parents. He's tall and he's a pretty strapping guy, and he's not a scaredy cat, but he was shaken. McQuarrie's father told the court after his son finished his testimony. He was clearly shaken. His voice wasn't right. Enough that his mom picked it up on the phone without ever seeing him. She said, "There's something wrong, John." After McQuarrie saw Sandusky in the shower in February 2001, he went to see his boss, Joe Paterno, the legendary head coach of the Penn State football team. Did you explain to him that Jerry Sandusky was naked in the shower? Yes, absolutely. Did you explain to him that there was skin-on-skin -skin contact with the boy? I believe so. Yes, ma'am. And did you explain to him that you heard these slapping sounds? Yes. Okay. What was? I'm not asking you what he said. What was his reaction? 
What was his demeanor? Saddened. He kind of slumped back in his chair and put his hand up on his face, and his eyes just kind of went sad. Paterno told his boss, the athletic director at Penn State, Tim Curley. Curley told another senior administrator at the university, Gary Schultz. Curley and Schultz then told the school's president, Graham Spanier. An investigation followed. In due course, Sandusky was arrested, and at his trial, an extraordinary story emerged. Eight young men testified that Sandusky had abused them hundreds of times over the years, in hotel rooms and locker room showers, and even in the basement of his home while his wife was upstairs. Sandusky was convicted of 45 counts of child molestation. Penn State paid over $100 million in settlements to his victims. He became, as the title of one book about the case reads, the most hated man in America. The most sensational fact about the Sandusky case, however, was that phrase I mentioned above, in due course. McQuarrie saw Sandusky in the shower in 2001. The investigation into Sandusky's behavior did not start until nearly a decade later, and Sandusky wasn't arrested until November 2011. Why did it take so long? After Sandusky was put behind bars, the spotlight fell on the leadership of Penn State University. Joe Paterno, the school's football coach, resigned in disgrace and died shortly thereafter. A statue of him that had been erected just a few years before was taken down. Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, the two senior university administrators McQuarrie had met with, were charged with conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and failure to report a case of child abuse. Both went to jail. And in the scandal's final devastating conclusion, prosecutors turned their attention to the university's president, Graham Spanier. He had led the school for 16 years and had transformed its academic reputation. He was beloved. In November 2011, he was fired. Six years later, he was convicted of child endangerment. At the height of the controversy, Sandusky gave a phone interview to NBC sports anchor Bob Costas. It gives us rare insight into how Sandusky described his own behavior. Here's Costas. You say you're not a pedophile. But you're a man who, by his own admission, has showered with young boys, highly inappropriate, multiple reports of you getting into bed with young boys who stayed at your house in a room in the basement. How do you account for these things? And if you're not a pedophile, then what are you? Well, I'm a person that has taken a strong interest. I'm a very passionate person in, in terms of trying to make a difference in the lives of some young people. Um, I had worked very hard to try to connect with them. But isn't what you're just describing the classic M.O. of many pedophiles? Well, you might think that. I don't know. Sandusky launches into a long defensive explanation. And then... Are you sexually attracted to young boys, to underage boys? Am I sexually attracted to yes. underage boys? Sexually attracted? You know, I, I enjoy young people. I I love to be around them. Um, I 
I, but no, I'm not sexually attracted to young boys. Costas looks wide-eyed and skeptical. The accusations are damning. University President Graham Spanier let that man roam free around the Penn State campus. But here's my question: In light of Anna Montes and Bernie Madoff and Harry Markopoulos, and every bit of evidence marshaled by Tim Levine about how hard it is for us to overcome our default to truth, do you think that if you were the president of Penn State, confronted with the same facts and questions, you would have behaved any differently? Jerry Sandusky grew up in Washington, Pennsylvania. His father headed the local community recreation center, running sports programs for children. The Sanduskys lived upstairs. Their house was filled with baseball bats and basketballs and footballs. There were children everywhere. As an adult, Sandusky recreated the world of his childhood. Sandusky's son E.J. once described his father as a frustrated playground director. Sandusky would organize kickball games in the backyard, and E.J. said. Dad would get every single kid involved. We had the largest kickball games in the United States—kickball games with forty kids. Sandusky and his wife Dottie adopted six children, and the couple were foster parents to countless more. They took in so many foster children that even their closest friends could not keep track of them all. Joe Posnanski wrote in a biography of Sandusky's boss, Joe Paterno: "Children constantly surrounded Sandusky, so much so." That they became part of his persona. Sandusky was a goofball and a cut-up. Sandusky's own autobiography, entitled "Incredibly Touched," is devoted to stories of his antics: the time he smeared charcoal over the handset of his chemistry teacher's phone, the time he ran afoul of a lifeguard for horseplay with his children in a public pool. Four and a half pages alone. Are devoted to water balloon fights he orchestrated while in college. Wherever I went, it seemed like trouble was sure to follow. Sandusky wrote, "I live a good part of my life in a make-believe world. I enjoyed pretending as a kid, and I love doing the same as an adult with these kids. Pretending has always been part of me." In 1977, Sandusky founded a charity called the Second Mile. It was a recreational program for troubled boys. Over the years, thousands of children from impoverished and unsettled homes in the area passed through the program. Sandusky took his second-mile kids to football games. He wrestled with them. He would give them gifts, write them letters, take them on trips, and bring them into his home. Many of the boys were being raised by single mothers. He tried to be the father they didn't have. If Sandusky did not have such a human side. There would be a temptation around Penn State to canonize him, a writer for Sports Illustrated said, upon Sandusky's retirement from the Penn State football coaching staff. Here, from the same era, is part of an article from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Quote: In more than one motel hallway, whenever you encountered him and offered what sounded like even the vaguest sort of compliment, he would blush, and an engaging. Lopsided grin of modesty would wrap its way around his face. He isn't in this business for recognition. His defense plays out in front of millions, but when he opens the door and invites in another stray, there is no audience. The ennobling measure of the man is that he has chosen the work that is done without public notice.
The first questions about Sandusky's conduct emerged in 1998. A second mile boy came home from a day with Sandusky, and his mother saw that he had wet hair. The boy said he had worked out with Sandusky, and then the two had taken a shower in the locker room. The boy said that Sandusky had wrapped his arms around him and said, "I'm gonna squeeze your guts out." Then he lifted him up to get the soap out of his hair, with the boy's feet touching Sandusky's thigh. The mother told her son's psychologist, Alicia Chambers, about what happened, but she was unsure what to make of the incident. "Am I overreacting?" she asked Chambers. Her son, meanwhile, saw nothing amiss. He described himself as the luckiest boy in the world, because when he was with Sandusky, he got to sit on the sidelines at Penn State football games. The case was closed. The next reported incident happened ten years later, involving a boy named Aaron Fisher, who had been in the Second Mile program since fourth grade. He came from a troubled home. He had gotten to know Sandusky well and spent multiple nights at Sandusky's home. His mother thought of Sandusky as some sort of angel, but in November 2008, when he was 15, Fisher mentioned to his mother that he felt uneasy about some of Sandusky's behavior. Sandusky would hold him tightly and crack his back. He would wrestle with him in a way that felt odd. Fisher was referred to a child psychologist named Mike Gillum, a believer in the idea that victims of sexual abuse. Sometimes bury their experiences so deep that they can only be retrieved with great care and patience. He was convinced that Sandusky had sexually abused Fisher, but that Fisher couldn't remember it. Fisher met with his therapist repeatedly, sometimes daily, for months, with Gillum encouraging and coaxing Fisher. As one of the police investigators involved in the case would say later, it took months to get that first kid to talk after it was brought to our attention. First, it was. Yeah, he would rub my shoulders. Then it just took repetition and repetition, and finally we got to the point where he would tell us what happened. By March 2009, Fisher would nod in answer to the question of whether he had had oral sex with Sandusky. By June, he would finally answer yes. Here we have two complaints against Sandusky in a span of a decade. Neither, however, led to Sandusky's apprehension. Why? Once again, because of default to truth, did doubt and suspicions rise to the level where they could no longer be explained away in the 1998 case of the boy in the shower? Not at all. The boy's psychologist wrote a report on the case, arguing that Sandusky's behavior met the definition of quote likely pedophile's pattern of building trust and gradual introduction of physical touch within a context of a loving, special relationship. Note the word. Likely, then a caseworker assigned to the incident by the Department of Public Welfare in Harrisburg investigated, and he was even less certain. He thought the incident fell into a gray area concerning boundary issues. The boy was then given a second evaluation by a counselor named John Seesock, who concluded, quote, "There seems to be no incident which could be termed as sexual abuse." Nor did there appear to be any sequential pattern of logic and behavior, which is usually consistent with adults who have difficulty with sexual abuse of children. Seesock didn't see it at all. He said someone should talk to Sandusky about how, 
quote, to stay out of such gray area situations in the future. The caseworker and a local police detective met with Sandusky. Sandusky told them he had hugged the boy, but that there wasn't anything sexual about it. He admitted to showering with other boys in the past. He said, honest to God, nothing happened. And remember, the boy himself also said nothing happened. So what do you do? You default to truth. Aaron Fisher's story was just as ambiguous. What Fisher remembered kept changing. Once he said the oral sex stopped in November 2007. Another time he said it started in the summer of 2007 and continued until September 2008. Another time he said it started in 2008 and continued into 2009. He said that he had performed oral sex on Sandusky many times. A week later, he said he had done it only once, and then five months later, he denied ever having done it at all. Fisher testified about Sandusky before a grand jury twice in 2009, but it seems the grand jury didn't find him credible. They declined to indict Sandusky. The police began systematically interviewing other boys who had been in the Second Mile program, looking for victims. They came up empty. This went on for two years. The prosecutor leading the case was ready to give up. You have a grown man who likes to horse around with young boys. Some people had doubts about Sandusky, but remember, doubts are not the enemy of belief. They are its companion. Then, out of the blue, in November 2010, the prosecutor's office received an anonymous email. I am contacting you regarding the Jerry Sandusky investigation, the email read. If you have not yet done so, you need to contact and interview Penn State football assistant coach Mike McQuarrie. He may have witnessed something involving Jerry Sandusky and a child. No more troubled teenagers with uncertain memories. With Michael McQuarrie, the prosecution finally had the means to make its case against Sandusky and the leadership of the university. A man sees a rape, tells his boss, and nothing happens for 11 years. If you knew about the Sandusky case at the time, that is the version you probably heard, stripped of all ambiguity and doubt. You know, there's a saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is the closing argument of the prosecutor, Laura Ditka, at Spanier's trial. And I would suggest to you that Graham Spanier was corrupted by his own power and blinded by his own media attention and reputation. And he's a leader that failed to lead. At Penn State, the final conclusion was that blame for Sandusky's crimes went all the way to the top. Spanier made a choice, Dicker said. We'll just keep it a secret, she imagined him saying to Curly and Schultz. We won't report it. We won't tell any authorities. If only things were that simple. Michael McQuarrie is six foot five. When he started as quarterback for Penn State, his weight was listed as 225 pounds. At the time of the shower incident, he was 27 years old in the physical prime of his life. Sandusky was 30 years older with a laundry list of medical ailments. First question. If McQuarrie was absolutely sure he witnessed a rape, why didn't he jump in and stop it? In the next part of Talking to Strangers, 
I'm going to tell the story of an infamous sexual assault case at Stanford University. It was discovered when two graduate students were cycling at midnight through the campus and saw a young man and woman lying on the ground. The man was on top, making thrusting movements. The woman was still. The two students approached the couple. The man ran. The students gave chase. There were enough suspicious facts about that situation to trigger the grad students out of the default assumption that the encounter on the ground was innocent. McQuery faced a situation that was, in theory at least, a good deal more suspicious. It was not two adults; it was a man and a boy, both completely naked. But McQuery didn't step in; he backed away, ran upstairs, and called his father. His father told him to come home. Then his father asked a family friend, a medical doctor by the name of Jonathan Dronoff, to come over and hear Michael's story. This is what Dronoff testified. Under oath, describing what McQuery told him, he said that he heard sounds, sexual sounds, and I asked him what he meant, and he just said, "Well, you know,、uh, sounds, sexual sounds." Well, I, I didn't know exactly what he was talking about. He didn't become any more graphic or detailed than that. But as I pressed him, it was obvious that he didn't have anything more he was going to say about it at the time. I asked him what he saw. He said he didn't see anything, but again, he was shaken and nervous. Dronoff is a physician. He has a duty to report any child abuse he becomes aware of. So why doesn't Dronoff go to the authorities when he hears McQuery's story? He was asked about this during the trial. Now you specifically pressed him that night, and you wanted to know what specifically he had seen. But my understanding is he did not tell you what he had seen. Correct. That's correct. All right. But you left that meeting with the impression that he heard sexual sounds. Correct. What he interpreted as sexual sounds. What he interpreted as sexual sounds. And your plan that you presented to him or proposed to him was that he should tell his boss, Joe Paterno. Correct. That's correct. You did not tell him to report to Children and Youth Services. Correct. That's correct. You did not tell him that he should report to the police. Correct. That's correct. You did not tell him that he should report to campus security. Correct. That's correct. You did not think it was appropriate for you to report it based on hearsay. Correct. That's correct. And indeed, the reason that you did not tell Mike McQuery to report to Children and Youth Services or the police is because you did not think that what Mike McQuery reported to you was inappropriate enough for that sort of report. Correct. That's correct. Dronoff listens to McQuery's story. In person on the night it happened, and he isn't convinced. Things get even more complicated. McQuery originally said he saw Sandusky in the showers on Friday, March first, two thousand and two. It was spring break. He remembered the campus being deserted and said that he went to see Paterno the following day, Saturday, March second. But when investigators went back through university emails, they discovered that McQuery. Was confused. The date of his meeting with Paterno was actually a year earlier, Saturday, February tenth, two thousand and one, which would suggest the shower incident happened the evening before, Friday, February ninth. But that doesn't make sense. McQuery remembers the campus as being deserted the night he saw Sandusky in the showers. 
But on that Friday evening in February, the Penn State campus was anything but deserted. Penn State's hockey team was playing West Virginia at the Greenberg Pavilion next door in a game that started at 9.15 p.m. There would have been crowds of people on the sidewalk filing into the arena. And a five-minute walk away at the Bryce Jordan Center, the popular Canadian rock band Bare Naked Ladies was playing. On that particular evening, that corner of the Penn State campus was a madhouse. John Ziegler, a journalist who has written extensively about the Penn State controversy, argues that the only plausible Friday night in that immediate time frame when the campus would have been deserted is Friday, December 29th, 2000, during Christmas break. If Ziegler is right and his arguments are persuasive, that leads to a third question. If McQuarrie witnessed a rape, why would he wait as long as five weeks, from the end of December to the beginning of February, to tell anyone in the university administration about it? The prosecution in the Sandusky case pretended that these uncertainties and ambiguities didn't exist. They told the public that everything was open and shut. The devastating 23-page indictment handed down in November of 2011 states that the, quote, graduate assistant, meaning McQuarrie, saw a naked boy with his hands up against the wall being subjected to anal intercourse by a naked Sandusky. And the next day, McQuarrie, quote, went to Paterno's home where he reported what he had seen. But neither of those claims match the facts, do they? When McQuarrie read those words in the indictment, he emailed Janelle Eschbach, the lead prosecutor in the case. He was upset. I feel my words were slightly twisted and not totally portrayed accurately in the presentment, he wrote. I want to make sure that you have the facts again in case I have not been clear. Then, I cannot say a thousand percent sure that it was sodomy. I did not see insertion. It was a sexual act and or way over the line, in my opinion, whatever it was. He wanted to correct the record. What are my options as far as a statement from me goes? He asked Eschbach. Think about how McQuarrie must have felt as he read the way Eschbach had distorted his words. He had seen something he thought was troubling. For weeks, as he wrestled with his conscience, he must have been in agony. What did I see? Should I say something? What if I'm wrong? Then he read the indictment, and what did he find? That the prosecutors, in order to serve their own ends, had turned gray into black and white. And what did that make him? A coward who witnessed a rape, ran away to call his parents, and never told the police. My life has drastically, drastically changed, he wrote to Eschbach. The Sandusky who took showers with young boys late at night was a stranger to McQuarrie, and Eschbach had refused to acknowledge how difficult it is to make sense of a stranger. My family's life has drastically changed, McQuarrie went on. National media and public opinion has totally, in every single way, ruined me. For what? It is useful to compare the Sandusky scandal to a second, even more dramatic child molestation case that broke a few years later. It involved a doctor at Michigan State named Larry Nasser. 
Nasser served as a team physician for the USA Gymnastics women's national team. He was bespectacled, garrulous, a little awkward. He seemed harmless. He doted on his patients. He was the kind of person you could call on at 2 a.m. and he would come running. Parents loved him. He treated hips and shins and ankles and the myriad other injuries that result from the enormous stress competitive gymnastics puts on young bodies. Nasser's specialty was the treatment of what is known as pelvic floor dysfunction, which involved him inserting his fingers into the vagina of a patient to massage muscles and tendons that had been shortened by the physical demands of gymnastics training. He did the pelvic floor procedure repeatedly and enthusiastically. He did it without consent, without wearing gloves, and when it wasn't necessary. He would massage his patient's breasts. He would penetrate them anally with his fingers for no apparent reason. He used a medical procedure as the cover for his own perverse sexual gratification. He was convicted on federal charges in the summer of 2017 and will spend the rest of his life in prison. As sexual abuse scandals go, the Nasser case is remarkably clear-cut. This is not a matter of he said, she said. The police retrieved the hard drive from Nasser's computer and found a library of child pornography, 37,000 images in all, some of them unspeakably graphic. He had photographs of his young patients as they sat in his bathtub taking ice baths prior to treatment. He didn't just have one accuser telling a disputed story. He had hundreds of accusers telling remarkably similar stories. Here is Rachel Den Hollander, whose allegations against Nasser proved critical to his conviction. Her victim impact statement to the court was recorded by M Live, a local Michigan news outlet. At age 15, when I suffered from chronic back pain, Larry sexually assaulted me repeatedly under the guise of medical treatment for nearly a year. He did this with my own mother in the room, carefully and perfectly obstructing her view so that she would not know what he was doing. Den Hollander had evidence, documentation. When I came forward in 2016, I brought an entire file of evidence with me. I brought medical records from a nurse practitioner documenting my graphic disclosure of abuse to her way back in 2004. I had my journals showing the mental anguish I had been in since the assault. I brought a witness I had disclosed to two in 2004. I brought evidence of two more women unconnected to me who were also claiming sexual assault. The Nasser case seemed open and shut. Yet how long did it take to bring him to justice? Years. Larissa Boyce, another of Nasser's victims, said that Nasser abused her in 1997 when she was 16. And what happened? Nothing. Boyce told the Michigan State gymnastics coach, Kathy Klages, Klages confronted Nasser. Nasser denied everything. Klages believed Nasser, not Boyce. The allegations raised doubts, but not enough doubts. The abuse went on. At Nasser's trial in a heart-rending moment, Larissa Boyce addressed him directly. I dreaded my next appointment with you because I was afraid that Kathy was going to tell you about my concerns. And unfortunately, I was right. I felt ashamed, embarrassed, and overwhelmed that I had talked to Kathy about this. I vividly remember when you walked into that room, closed the door behind you, pulled up your stool, and sat down in front of me and said, 
So I talked to Kathy. As soon as I heard those words, my heart sank. My confidence had been betrayed. I wanted to crawl into the deepest, darkest hole and hide. Over the course of Nasser's career as a sexual predator, there were as many as 14 occasions in which people in positions of authority were warned that something was amiss with him. Parents, coaches, officials. Nothing happened. In September 2016, the Indianapolis Star published a devastating account of Nasser's record, supported by Den Hollander's accusations. Many people close to Nasser backed him, even after this. Nasser's boss, the dean of osteopathic medicine at Michigan State, allegedly told students, This just goes to show that none of you learned the most basic lesson in medicine, Medicine 101. Don't trust your patients. Patients lie to get doctors in trouble. Kathy Klegis had the gymnasts on her team sign a card for Nasser, thinking of you. It took the discovery of Nasser's computer hard drive with its trove of appalling images to finally change people's minds. When scandals like this break, one of our first inclinations is to accuse those in charge of covering for the criminal, of protecting him, of deliberately turning a blind eye, or putting their institutional or financial interests ahead of the truth. We look for a conspiracy behind the silence. But the Nasser case reminds us how inadequate that interpretation is. Many of Nasser's chief defenders were the parents of his patients. They weren't engaged in some sort of conspiracy of silence to protect larger institutional or financial interests. These were their children. One gymnast mother, a medical doctor herself, incidentally, gave an interview to Believed, a brilliant podcast from Michigan Radio and NPR about the Nasser scandal. This woman was in the room while Nasser treated her daughter, sitting a few feet away. I remember out of the corner of my eye seeing what looked to be potentially an erection. And I just remember thinking, that's weird. That's really weird. Poor guy. (laughs) Thinking like, that would be very strange for a, a physician to get an erection in a patient's room while, um, you know, giving her an exam. But at the time when you're in the room and he's doing this procedure, um, you just think he's being a good doctor and doing his best for your child. He was that slick. He was that smooth. In another instance, a young girl goes to see Nasser with her father. Nasser puts his fingers inside her with her dad sitting in the room. Later that day, the gymnast tells her mother, here's the mother looking back on that moment. You know, I remember it like it was five seconds ago. I'm in the driver's seat. She's in the passenger seat. And she said, Larry did something to me today that made me feel uncomfortable. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, he, you know, touched me. And I said, well, touched you where? And she said, down there. And the whole time, you you know what she's saying, but you're you're trying to rationalize that, that it can't be that. She called her husband and asked him if he had left the room at any time during the appointment. He said he hadn't. Here's what a father of another victim told the reporters unbelieved. And she's sitting in the car, very quiet and depressed, and saying, Dad, he's not helping my back pain. 
let's not go anymore. But this is Larry. This is the gymnastics doctor. If he can't cure her, nobody will cure her. Only God has more skills than Larry. Be patient, honey. It's going to take time. Good things take time. That's what we always taught our kids. So I would say, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go again next week. We're going to go again the following week. And then you will start seeing the progress. She said, okay, dad, you, you know, I trust your judgment. The fact that Nasser was doing something monstrous is exactly what makes the parents' position so difficult. If Nasser had been rude to their daughters, they would have spoken up immediately. If their daughters had said to them on the way home that they had smelled alcohol on Nasser's breath, most parents would have filed an immediate complaint. It is not impossible to imagine that doctors are occasionally rude or drunk. Default to truth becomes an issue when we're forced to choose between two alternatives, one of which is likely and the other of which is impossible to imagine. Default to truth biases us in favor of the most likely interpretation. Scott Carmichael believed Anna Montes, right up to the point where believing her became absolutely impossible. The parents did the same thing, not because they were negligent, but because this is how most human beings are wired. Many of the women he had abused, in fact, defended Nasser. They couldn't see past default to truth either. Trine Gonzar was treated 856 times by Nasser during her gymnastics career. When one of her teammates came to Gonzar and said that Nasser had put his fingers inside her, Gonzar tried to reassure her. He does that to me all the time. When the Indianapolis Star broke the Nasser story, Gonzar stood by him. She was convinced he would be exonerated. It was all a big mix-up. When did she finally change her mind? Only when the evidence against Nasser became overwhelming. At Nasser's trial, when Gonzar joined the chorus of his victims in testifying against him, she finally gave in to her doubts. I had to make an extremely hard choice this week, Larry. I had to choose whether to continue supporting you through this or to support them, the girls. I choose them, Larry. I choose to love them and protect them. I choose to stop caring for you and supporting you. I choose to look you in the face and tell you that you hurt us. You hurt me. I hope you will see it from me in my eyes today that I believed in you always until I couldn't anymore. I hope you cry like we cry. I hope you feel bad for what you've done. <laughs> I hope more than anything, each day these girls can feel less pain. I hope you want that for us. <laughs> but this is goodbye to you, Larry. And this time, it's time for me to close the door. It's time for me to stand up for me, these little girls and not stand behind you anymore, Larry. Goodbye, Larry. May God bless your dark, broken soul. I believed in you always until I couldn't anymore. Isn't that an almost perfect statement of default to truth? Default to truth operates 
even in a case where the perpetrator had 37,000 child porn images on his hard drive and where he had been accused countless times by numerous people over the course of his career. The Nasser case was open and shut, and still there were doubts. Now imagine the same scenario, only in a case that isn't open and shut. That's the Sandusky case. After the accusations against Sandusky were made public, one of his staunchest defenders was a former Second Mile participant named Alan Myers. When the Pennsylvania police were interviewing former Second Mile kids in an attempt to corroborate the allegations against Sandusky, they contacted Myers, and he was adamant. Myers said that he does not believe the allegations that had been made and that the accuser is only out to get some money, the police report read. Myers continues to be in touch with Sandusky one to two times a week by telephone. Myers told the police that he had showered in the locker room with Sandusky many times after workouts, and nothing untoward had ever happened. Two months later, Myers went further. He walked into the offices of Sandusky's attorney and made a stunning revelation. After reading the details of McQuarrie's story, he realized that he had been the boy in the shower that night. Curtis Everhart, an investigator for Sandusky's lawyer, wrote a synopsis of his interview with Myers. It is worth quoting at length. I asked the specific question, did Jerry ever touch you in a manner that you felt to be improper or caused you to feel concern about his invading your personal space? Myers answered with a very pronounced, never ever did anything like that ever occur. Myers stated, Never in my life while with Jerry did I ever feel uncomfortable or violated. I think of Jerry as the father I never had. Myers stated on senior night at a West Branch High School football game, I asked Jerry to walk onto the field with my mother. It was announced on the loudspeaker, Father Jerry Sandusky, along with my mother's name. I invited Jerry and Dottie to my wedding. Why would I ask Jerry, my father figure at senior night, ask Jerry and Dottie to be at my wedding, and the school asked me to ask Jerry to speak at my graduation, which he did, if there was a problem? Why would I travel to games, go to his house, and make all the trips if Jerry had assaulted me? If that had happened, I would want to be as far away from him as possible. Myers described the night in question to investigators. I would usually work out one or two days a week, but this particular night is very clear in my mind. We were in the shower, and Jerry and I were slapping towels at each other, trying to sting each other. I would slap the walls and would slide on the shower floor, which I am sure you could have heard from the wooden locker area. While we were engaged in fun, as I have described, I heard the sound of a wooden locker door close, a sound I have heard before. I never saw who closed the locker. The grand jury report says, Coach McQuery said he observed Jerry and I engaged in sexual activity. This is not the truth, and McQuery is not telling the truth. Nothing occurred that night in the shower. But a few weeks later, Myers signed up with a lawyer who represented a number of alleged Sandusky victims. Myers then made a statement to police in which he completely changed his tune. He was one of Sandusky's victims, he now said. 
you could be forgiven if you find this confusing. The boy in the shower was the most important witness in the whole case. Prosecutors had been searching high and low for him because he would be the final nail in Sandusky's coffin. So finally he surfaces, denies anything happened, then almost immediately flips, saying actually something did happen. So did Myers become the key prosecution witness in the Sandusky trial? That would make sense. He was the most important piece in the whole puzzle. No. The prosecution left him at home because they had no confidence in his story. The prosecution's report on Alan Myers is a doozy. An investigator named Michael Coricelli spoke to Myers' lawyer, who told him that Myers now claimed to have been raped repeatedly by Sandusky. The prosecution tried to re-interview Myers. Myers' lawyer would not let them. Finally, his lawyer produced a three-page account allegedly written by Myers detailing his abuse at the hands of Sandusky. The prosecution team read the account and concluded that it hadn't been written by Myers at all, but rather by his lawyer. At that point, the prosecution gave up and walked away from one of the most important figures in the entire case. The only time Myers ever appeared in court was to testify at Sandusky's appeal. Sandusky had asked him to testify in the vain hope that Myers would revert to his original position and say that nothing happened in the shower. Myers did not. Instead, as Sandusky's lawyers read back to Myers each of the statements he had made less than a year before about Sandusky's innocence, Myers sat there stone-faced and shrugged at everything, including a picture of him standing happily next to Sandusky. Who were the people in the photo, he was asked. Myers, that's myself and your client. Defense, and when was that picture taken, if you know? Myers, that I do not remember. It was a picture of Myers and Sandusky at Myers' wedding. In all, he said he didn't recall 34 times. Then there was Brett Swisher Houts a second-mile child with whom Sandusky had been very close. He was probably the most devastating witness at Sandusky's trial. House told of being repeatedly assaulted and abused, of dozens of lurid sexual encounters with Sandusky during his teenage years, in showers and saunas and hotel rooms. Mr. Houts, can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury approximately how many times the defendant in either the East Area Locker Room or the Lash Building shower, put his penis in your mouth. It would have to be 40 times, at least. Did you want him to do it? No. On any of those occasions? No. Then Sandusky's wife, Dottie, was called to the stand. She was asked when she and her husband last saw Brett Howes. I think it was uh, three years ago or two years ago. I'm not sure. The stories Howes told of his abuse were alleged to have happened in the 1990s. Dottie Sandusky was saying that two decades after being brutally and repeatedly victimized, House decided to drop by for a visit. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Jerry got a phone call. It was Brett. He said, I want to come over. I want to bring my girlfriend and my baby for you to see. The baby was like uh, two years old, and they came over. And my friend Elaine Steinbacher was there, and we went and got Kentucky Fried Chicken and had dinner. 
and it was a very pleasant visit. This is a much more perplexing example than Trinae Gonzar in the Nasser case. Gonzar never denied that something happened in her sessions with Nasser. She chose to interpret his actions as benign for entirely understandable reasons up until the point when she listened to the testimony of her fellow gymnasts at Nasser's trial. Sandusky, by contrast, wasn't practicing some ambiguous medical procedure. He is supposed to have engaged in repeated acts of sexual violence, and his alleged victims didn't misinterpret what he was doing to them. They acted as if nothing had ever happened. They didn't confide in their friends. They didn't write anguished accounts in their journals. They dropped by years later to show off their babies to the man who raped them. They invited their rapists to their weddings. One victim showered with Sandusky and called himself the luckiest boy in the world. Another boy emerged with a story after months of prodding by a therapist that couldn't even convince a grand jury. Sexual abuse cases are complicated, wrapped in layers of shame and denial and clouded memories. But few high-profile cases were as complicated as Jerry Sandusky's. Now think about what that complication means for those who must make sense of all that swirling contradiction. There were always doubts about Sandusky. But how do you get to enough doubts when the victims are happily eating Kentucky Fried Chicken with their abuser? So, McQuery goes to see his boss, Joe Paterno, on a Saturday. An alarmed Paterno sits down with Tim Curley and Gary Schultz the following day, Sunday. They immediately call the university's council and then brief the university president, Graham Spanier, on Monday. Then, Curley and Schultz call him Mike McQuery. You can only imagine what Curley and Schultz are thinking as they listen to him. If this really was a rape, why didn't you break it up? If what you saw was so troubling, why didn't anyone, including your family friend, who is a doctor, tell the police? And if you, Mike McQuery, were so upset about what you saw, why did you wait so long to tell us? Curley and Schultz then call the university's outside counsel. But McQuery hasn't given them much. They instinctively reach, as we all do, for the most innocent of explanations. Maybe Jerry was just being goofy Jerry. Here is how, at trial, the Penn State lawyer, Wendell Courtney, recounted his conversation with Gary Schultz. I asked at some point along the way whether this horseplay involving Jerry and a young boy, whether there was anything sexual in nature, and he indicated to me that there was not, to his knowledge. My vision, at least when it was being described to me and talking with Mr. Schultz, was that it was, you know, a young boy with the showers on, a lot of water in the shower area, group shower area, just kind of, you know, running and sliding on the floor. Are you sure he didn't say slapping sound or anything sexual in nature at all? I am quite positive he never said to me slapping sounds or anything sexual in nature that was reported going on in the shower. Courtney said he thought about it and considered the worst-case scenario. This was, after all, a man and a boy in the shower after hours. But then he thought of what he knew of Jerry Sandusky, as someone that goofed around with second-mile kids all the time in public, 
and he defaulted to that impression. Schultz then testifies how he went to see University President Spanier. You did tell Graham Spanier it was horseplay? Yeah. When did you tell him that? Well, the first first report that we got that was passed on to us is horsing around. Jerry Sandusky was seen in the shower horsing around with a kid. And I think that word is repeated to President Spanier that, you know, that he was horsing around. Spanier listened to Schultz and asked two questions. Are you sure that's how it was described to you, as hoisting around? He said yes. Then Spanier asked again, Are you sure that's all that was said to you? Spanier barely knew Sandusky. Penn State has thousands of employees. One of them, now retired, was spotted in a shower. I remember for a moment sort of figuratively scratching our heads and thinking about what's an appropriate way to follow up on horsing around, Spanier said later. I had never gotten a report like that before. If Harry Markopoulos had been president of Penn State during the Sandusky case, of course, he would never have defaulted like this to the most innocent of explanations. A man in a shower with a boy? The kind of person who saw through Madoff's deceit a decade before anyone else would have left at once to the most damning conclusion. How old was the kid? What were they doing there at night? Wasn't there a weird case with Sandusky a couple years ago? But Graham Spanier is not Harry Markopoulos. He opted for the likeliest explanation, that Sandusky was who he claimed to be. Does he regret not asking one more follow-up question, not quietly asking around? Of course he does. But defaulting to truth is not a crime. It is a fundamentally human tendency. Spanier behaved no differently from the mountain climber and Scott Carmichael and Nat Simons and Trine Gonzar and, for that matter, virtually every one of the parents of the gymnasts treated by Larry Nasser. Weren't some of those parents in the room when Nasser was abusing their own children? Hadn't their children said something wasn't right? Why did they send their child back to Nasser again and again? Yet in the Nasser case, no one has ever suggested that the parents of the gymnasts belong in jail for failing to protect their offspring from a predator. We accept the fact that being a parent requires a fundamental level of trust in the community of people around your child. If every coach is assumed to be a pedophile, then no parent would ever let their child leave the house, and no sane person would ever volunteer to be a coach. We default to truth even when that decision carries terrible risks, because we have no choice. Society cannot function otherwise. And in those rare cases where trust ends in betrayal, those victimized by default to truth deserve our sympathy, not our censure. Tim Curley and Gary Schultz were charged first. Two of the most important officials at one of the most prestigious state universities in the United States, were placed under arrest. Spanier called his senior staff together for an emotional meeting. He considered Penn State to be a big family. These were his friends. When they told him that the shower incident was probably just horseplay, he believed they were being honest. You're going to find that everyone is going to distance themselves from Gary and Tim, Spanier said. 
but he would not. You've worked with them every day of your life, and I have for the last sixteen years, he remembers saying. If any of you operate according to how we have always agreed to operate at this university, honestly, openly, with integrity, always doing what's in the best interests of the university, if you were falsely accused of something, I would do the same thing for any of you in here. I want you to know that. None of you should ever fear doing the right thing or being accused of wrongdoing when you knew you were doing the right thing because this university would back them up. This is why people liked Graham Spanier. It's why he had such a brilliant career at Penn State. It's why you and I would want to work for him. We want Graham Spanier as our president, not Harry Markopoulos armed to the teeth waiting for a squad of government bureaucrats to burst through the front door. This is the first of the ideas to keep in mind when considering the death of Sandra Bland. We think we want our guardians to be alert to every suspicion. We blame them when they default to truth. When we send people like Graham Spanier to jail, we send a message to all of those in positions of authority about the way we want them to make sense of strangers without stopping to consider the consequences of sending that message. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> 